Come with me and take a voyage to the bottom of the sea. This podcast is an observation and a journey to the heart of the Gothic. It is an attempt to understand the essence of what is in literature and in movies and related arts, often called the Gothic. We're not talking about Gothic revival and architecture, although there is a connection. We're not talking about Goths and a kind of movement uh, among young people that we associate with Columbine and uh, um, darkness of that nature. We're talking about the Gothic in literature, movies, especially horror movies, and in related arts. And we're getting at here something quite, in my opinion, profound and engaging and entrapping and interesting and finally fruitful and heuristic of hope for the human condition. Now that sure is promising a whole lot uh, and I can't possibly fulfill it, but I want to talk about the Gothic, an interest I've had for at least 50 years. And finally, a little light seemed to come recently on what is actually happening with the Gothic and what it is speaking, what it is addressing in the human situation, and what is ultimately really to be gained or garnered from a study and an experience of the Gothic. I speak firsthand. Now, um, let me give you an example of the Gothic, and then I will define it, and then I'll give you some more examples, and a few from ministry, from actual pastoral situations I've found myself in. And finally, um, a few words about its relationship to the deepest yearnings and hurts and dreams and malfeasances of the human condition. Well, uh, recently it started a kind of chain reaction in my own memories as I read Cobb's Irvin S. Cobb's story called Fishhead. Uh, this uh, story, which is really the only story together with Snake Doctor, which is an authentically gothic story that has kind of lasted through the era of Cobb amnesia in the American psyche, such that the humorist Cobb is simply no longer read. His great and, in my opinion, reconciling and very ironic and very creative uh, short stories about human retrieval and rehabilitation in a small Kentucky town called Fairfield based on Paducah. These stories have disappeared from view because they often involve uh, racial and ethnic stereotypes of the pre-World War I period that would be more at home in Birth of a Nation and therefore cannot be read, although you couldn't find a more different perspective uh, on, uh, uh, on uh, life and hope and community in the early Cobb than in uh, Dixon's book The Clansman on which uh, um, Birth of a Nation was based. But you can't see that today and won't be for at least 100 years because of the pre-World War I American stereotyping that was very common and uh, that if you strip it away, you have a truly liberal view of human affairs in Cobb. But one story has remained kind of cosmetically interesting and rather darkly attracting for a whole culture. And that story about a young man who's sort of uh, one of his parents is a fish, and he lives at the extreme bayou and the devil's bayou type end of Real Foot Lake, which I've just come back from in western Kentucky and Tennessee. Uh, he 
this odd sort of character out of a horror movie, which uh, is believed to have directly influenced H.P. Uh, Lovecraft in his famous story about half-fish people called The Shadow Over Innsmouth. And that's a whole culture of thousands of people who are interested in this strange called the Innsmouth Cycle, or sequence of stories, beginning with Lovecraft. But Lovecraft got it from Cobb, who tells this story in which two terrible villains are who kill Fishhead, who's an innocent, although a mutant innocent. Uh, they are dragged to their watery, protracted, agonizing deaths by man-sized catfish, who first paralyze them with those kind of whiskers around their noses, and then consume them and feed on them. And that story has a tremendous attraction to the whole gothic world out there. But it's, strictly speaking, not really as gothic a story as uh, as uh, Blacker Than Sin, which occurs early in the Cobb oeuvre. And this is our first clue, this story, Blacker Than Sin, to what is the essential gothic, and what what is it that, why is it a refuge for many in human affairs? Why is the gothic a kind of homing port for so many from Edgar Allan Poe through the early English uh, Gothic writers through um, Le Fanu and uh, uh, then to Machen and Blackwood and the Americans and the English and it's an Anglo-Saxon tradition that we know very well right down through Shirley Jackson. And uh, Cobb's story, uh, Blacker Than Sin, involves a major foxmaster from a patrician and very hauteured Virginia plantation family who, after the Civil War, settles in Paducah, Kentucky. And here he grows into middle age and old age, and he looks down on everybody in the community and spends his time at sort of a men's club and uh, living off his his, uh, estates back in Virginia. But something happens soon after he settles. A woman comes to town who is dressed only in black and wears the uh, widow's weeds of a southern lady pre-Civil War from top to toe with an impenetrable black veil, a black kind of a hat over her head, and black uh, dresses of crepe right down to her black shoes. And it turns out, although the major foxmaster never addresses her, never talks to her, we know nothing about her directly, but she shadows him. When he leaves his playing cards at his men's club at night, she shadows him ten feet behind. Whenever he goes out in the morning to get a bite to eat or to do anything of his own affairs or to go and read a newspaper, he's shadowed by this woman. And it becomes a kind of town legendary oddity of this woman in mourning who is continually shadowing him. And it comes to find out that she is the daughter of a neighboring plantation, well-born family back in Virginia, whom he had wronged. He had grown up with her, had wronged her, as the expression is, had not married her, and had fled his responsibilities. And she determined in her antebellum gothic grief to shadow him for the rest of his life. Now, we find out later in the story, because this is a gothic story, that underneath her, underneath this event, this odd and bizarre um, shadowing of culpability and shame and humiliation, there is something infinitely worse even than meets the eye, which of which very little does. And what is really going on turns out to be 
profoundly upsetting. And uh, in this small little setting of horror, something much worse than even the horrific details at first vouchsafed. And this is a Gothic story. Now, what do I mean by the Gothic? You may be sitting there saying, okay, Paul, tell us what exactly the Gothic is. Well, there is actually something we can say about the Gothic, short and sweet. And I'm going to read from Chris Baldick, Professor Chris Baldick's introduction. He's a professor at Lancaster University in uh, in uh, the UK. And he uh, writes the um, very informative introduction to the Oxford Book of Gothic Tales, 1992. And this is what he says about what the Gothic actually is. And I'm going here, if you'll bear with me, you may say, oh, I could be less interested, or this is obviously not for the normal people who listen to this podcast, or whatever you may say. Please bear with me, because there is something, A, important pastorally, and, and even as a, for looking at the world with some degree of wanting to, to, to do our fellow man some kind of good, whatever that might happen to be, that we might think we could make a contribution. But beyond that, our liberality, but beyond that, there's something more here. There's something about the nature of reality that is going to hit us very deeply as we look at the Gothic in our own lives, because it's very real, if you'll give me a little time to spell it out. This tradition goes way back into Anglo-Saxon and American literature, and uh, it's very alive and well in the horror movie, but not exclusively. And this is what Professor Baldick says the Gothic is. The Gothic may be translated into concrete terms by noting that typically <clears throat> a Gothic tale will invoke the tyranny of the past, a family curse, the survival of archaic forms of despotism and of superstition, with such weight as to stifle the hopes of the present, the liberty of the heroine or hero, within the dead end of physical incarceration, the dungeon, the locked room, or simply the confinements of a family house closing in upon itself. Even more concisely, he concludes this brief summary of the Gothic, we could just say that Gothic fiction is characteristically obsessed with old buildings as sites of human decay. Now you can see why post-bellum um, unreconstructed southern communities would be natural settings as James, uh, uh, William Faulkner uh, was able to clearly produce and Flannery O'Connor for gothic type of thinking. And the Gothic is a is a resonance with the decay, the exhaustion, the desiccation, and the uh, finally running into ashes of the human body uh, when it is uh, uh, heavily laded with uh, something from the past that is represented by a confining space, even if it's a mental space alone. And uh, so a Cobb story, um, blacker than sin, uh, a little bit of the real foot lake ambience, and and uh, one of his most powerful Gothic mysteries entitled The uh, Mystery of the Widow with the Sore Thumb, which he wrote in 1937. These all portray um, really decaying families and decaying people who are under some tremendous what feels like a curse or, or projected curse, which ends up creating a, a cr criminal uh, act activity, actually, or, or deeply, deeply grotesque attempts to um, come to terms with an impossible burden. Uh, the stories of Edgar Allan Poe are classic here, especially the um, fall of the House of Usher, the pit 
and the pendulum and the premature burial, all of which fit the bill and all of which were made into outstanding, inexpensive little uh, Hollywood movies made by Roger Corman in the 1960s where the man succeeded completely in capturing the claustrophobic below ground uh, and often highly um, misunderstood or... uh, uh, um, added to in the mind um, fevers that were caught from supposed family curses that are worked out in underground spaces. You can see why sort of uh, any view of uh, sort of Hawthorne, you know, Original Sin, the minister with that black veil, Goodman Brown, these are all in the tradition of the Gothic, squarely in uh, the... uh, the decay of curses, the house of the seven gables. Now, I'd like to talk about um, one particular writer who appeals uh, to me and I think uh, captures something of the Gothic. And I'm going to slip over here and get a book uh, with a segment that sums this up. Ray Russell happens to be a favorite of mine. He wrote uh, for national magazines, shall we say, in the uh, 50s and 60s, and also became a Hollywood scriptwriter and was friends with uh, the fated, doomed uh, Charles Beaumont, and he was sort of in the, he knew Rod Serling, and he uh, wrote a number of uh, gothic stories in the 50s and 60s that are absolutely devastating, and a couple of them have been made into films. And Ray Russell... (coughs) Uh, his great achievement is called uh, uh, Sardonicus. It's a long, short story that was then made into a movie by William Castle, the notorious entertainer William Castle. Sardonicus by Ray Russell was then made into a movie by William Castle called Mr. Sardonicus, and the script was written by Ray Russell. So you have the authentic sensibility. And here we have these uh, the exact thing. A young man discovers something, Uh, about his father at a very vulnerable young married age when he is completely unprepared for a fact he finds out about his father that has a very strong sort of disgusting physical symptom. His father is dead, but he discovers something, and so shocking is the discovery that in Ray Russell's story, his face, the face of this poor young man, freezes into a kind of tetanus, lock-jawed, rigor mortis, a little bit like that story also by Hugo, isn't it? called Gwynplaine, the uh, man who laughs, um, his, his, uh, his smile, his jaw is frozen in a perpetual smile. He cannot really eat solid food, and he becomes a complete caricature because his f- mouth is frozen into a grotesque grin. This is beautifully portrayed in this rather cheap but well-written little movie. Cheap is a, a positive word about it, with a kind of, uh, f- kind of a funny little showbiz touch called the punishment pole. We all took it. Should he be judged for what he did or not? And poor Sardonicus, through no fault of his own, has become a kind of criminal type, living in a castle in Central Europe, where he tries to find various ways, women, wine, and song, to release his his jaw, and he cannot get it done, and he doesn't succeed. And uh, come to find out at the end, you'll see, um, he is... Um, uh, cannot be cured because of his mind, not his body. And this curse from his father completely physically paralyzes him. And it is a devastating story about the demons from within, which kind of then have a life of their own and cause this physical uh, extraordinary symptom. And uh, Russell uh, wrote 
uh, a lot, but a book that I find quite lame, to be honest with you, uh, from the 70s. He wrote a book in the 70s that is really quite lame, full of cliches and um, very unbelievable sort of a multitude of characters that you might write. It's sort of like a freshman exercise in a writing class. He throws in everything but the kitchen sink into this late novel called Absolute Power. I sometimes have wondered whether he even wrote the whole thing as a novel or whether this is like an adolescent exercise that was published. But I have in my hand, I have in my hand a letter from uh, Ray Russell, an autographed copy of Absolute Power. He signed it himself. And in this lame series of inane caricatured characters who are every bit as stereotyped in their 1970s way as Cobb's characters are apparently, but not really, but superficially stereotyped in his 1910 manner. And in this particular thing, however, nonetheless, despite the lameness, he gets right to the heart of business, does Russell. We're suddenly on page 55 to 57, the authentic Gothic consciousness. The um, extraordinary horror of, of a situation is suddenly graphically captured. This is hard going and I've cut the vulgar parts, but it's, I'm going to read it as it is with a few exceptions. And this little bit from uh, Ray Russell is gothic writing at its finest, although it's very heavy going. In the story, a, a poor, young, um, selfish, uh, heedless young fella, Jerry Kyle, has uh, made some spare cash as being the messenger for a woman who uh, has dark purple eyes and is very much up to no good and it turns out she's a primordial druidistic witch and he has crossed her but he doesn't know what he was doing and he pays a fearful penalty and here on page 55 is just a little section of the kind of purple prose of the gothic when it's really good although it's it's memorable at this moment in the pitch-dark wine cellar of a fashionable house in Brentwood he's referring to the Brentwood section of Los Angeles Jerry Kyle was hanging stark naked from the ceiling by his tongue, his lying tongue, that organ protruding, swollen, distended from his wide-stretched mouth, is gripped by a small, powerful metal clamp attached to the cellar ceiling. His hands are wired high behind his back. His ankles are lashed together by the same kind of wire. The circulation in his hands and feet has long since stopped. He is suffering pain of excruciating ferocity, and he has been assured that there is worse yet to come. He knows why, too. He tried to cheat the woman with the purple eyes. Why was he such a fool, he asks himself for the 100th time as he hangs there in the dark. He knew that he was dealing with a sick woman, a cruel woman, an insanely dangerous woman armed with money. Why did he risk enraging her? Why, why, why? He has lost the strength to scream. It has been explained to him that the cellar is completely soundproofed. Scream all you want, Mr. Kyle, the woman with the purple eyes told him. No one will ever hear you. Now she comes in then, this uh, extraordinary villain. And she paints sort of uh, odd characters from some kind of ancient parchment on his naked body. He doesn't understand them and can't even see them. And then she chants and has an incantation. And she leaves. And then this is what happens. Time passes, full of pain, empty of hope, an attorney of torture later, and yet all too soon, he becomes aware of something. He senses a presence in the cellar that was not here before. He feels that it is directly under him. He hears a liquid sound, a deep, wet gargling, gurgling sound. He smells a revoltingly fetid, choking stench. Although it is totally dark in the cellar, he begins to be aware of a faint glow, a luminosity so dim that first he mistakes it for a product of his imagination. He cannot see the face, perhaps that is a mercy, for Gerald Kyle is spared the sight of the thing that has joined him in the darkness. The chalked green circles and symbols are no longer on the cellar floor. 
because the floor has become a mouth, a mouth without a face, no eyes, no nose, nothing except one gigantic slobbering nightmare of a mouth. It stretches from one cellar wall to another like an awful living carpet. When it opens and closes, it makes the wet sounds Kyle can hear. When it gapes, it shows that it is lined with teeth as a cave is studded with stalagmites and stalactites. Teeth bristling on the roof of the mouth. Teeth on the bottom where a tongue should be. Hundreds of towering teeth and a mouth that is infinitely deep. Now Jerry Kyle hears and feels a, a whooshing, roaring movement of air as the mouth begins to suck him into its hideous maw. He feels the mighty force pulling and tugging relentlessly, dragging him downwards. Now, boy, oh boy, um, uh, this is uh, the gothic. This is the supernatural terror. This is the end of Jerry Kyle. Now, I simply say that because these, uh, these are all over literature, not always as good as that, although that's a horrific passage, and it gets a lot worse, which I've cut, and all over the place, and yet this seems to exert a tremendous fascination on people. I've known people in parish ministry who were who were just as hooked on this material as as a missionary supposedly is hooked on the gospel. Um, they just didn't tell people about it. And of course, the people outside who are living on the internet or living in these books of all ages, mostly men, but not always men, mostly young men, but not always young men. These people are obsessed. I, I knew a fellow who worked at a church as kind of an underling of an underling. It was a large operation and a nice guy. And he did his little job in the church, which was basically a kind of a sexton's job, but he was completely focused when I got to know him on H.P. Lovecraft's lengthy story uh, at the mouth of at the, at the mountains of madness at the mountains of madness, which is being made, I believe, into a movie. That's a horrific story. That is a story beyond. That is a story of cosmic supernatural gothic horror with a, castles and dungeons in the Arctic and aliens and and being pulled down. Creatures with tentacles and all the Jerry Kyle stuff, but with a cosmic background by that nihilist uh, uh, writer, H.P. Lovecraft, who was so smart and so brilliant and so hot, but was so suicidal. And my friend, I could tell that this was a kind of safe port for his problems. He had terrible problems with women and terrible problems with what we today call, or he used to call self-esteem and with how he saw his body. And he was just terribly confused and very wounded. And he told me about his life, but the only thing that he ever found any hope in, was not church or anything like that, but H.P. Lovecraft, and specifically at the Mountains of Madness. So I studied that story. I studied that story. Later on, I met a woman who was equally focused, um, but this time in working in the church and had a very responsible job and had a lot of people who, for whom she was uh, needed to do a lot of good, you might say. And yet what really made her tick is uh, she was uh, an author of gothic romantic fiction. She regarded herself as an author uh, who wrote fiction by women for women with all sorts of subsidiary psychosexual themes. And no one knew, no one knew in the whole operation that what she really loved to do more than anything and lived for was uh, what I'm telling you, a kind of newspeak, rather violent, a gothic uh, a fiction for uh, about and by women. And she lived for this, and she introduced me to some very unusual names. I think they had purple eyes, but nevertheless, um, we connected completely on this front. Well, if you look out there, they are not alone. You are not alone, and I am not alone. You may not be interested in this stuff, but just go to any comic book store, but that's even not the place to go. Uh, it's, we're talking about the sort of skateboard culture almost there. <clears throat> just go on the internet, talk to people, find out who goes to these movies. Why do they clean up? Why 
is Wes Craven such a national phenomenon? His autograph, by the way, I'm looking at that my sister so kindly got from me a couple of years ago that I treasure. Why is Wes Craven such a national treasure, so to speak? What is going on? Well, I want to say what I think is going on now in gothic fiction and movies. What it is, let's go back to Baldick. The uh, decay of the body under the burden of an archaic or hierarchical or sickeningly curse-laden uh, parental, grandparental, familial curse or institutional curse that is lying on the present as a person lives in his body or her body and she feels this in the form of physical manifestations. Anything, have you ever heard of that before? Ever seen that in your life? And they gradually sicken and die. And it always takes place or characteristically takes place in a, in a haunted house in a jail, in a underground, in a space, the Chilean miners, you know, way underneath, although that's not really a, the right uh, note, but nonetheless, in the dark, under the ground. And this is very, very alluring and attracting and bewitching and entrancing and hypnotic for thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people. What is going on? Obviously, there is a symbolic, substitutive um, experience here uh, that people are feeling paralyzed in their lives lives with accumulating physical symptoms of one sort or another that are played out. Um, and I don't want to be a sociologist. I'm, talking, I'm talking here about Edgar Allan Poe or, or the, uh, what is that story, the case of uh, uh, Charles Dexter Ward, where uh, Lovecraft captures the physical decay, the fluids, the stink, the smell of the decaying body under the influence of some satanic power, which turns out to be usually obviously a conceptual thing uh, borne out by some passed along family curse or as such that doesn't even have as an, isn't alive, what's happening with this is that you are affected in the now by something that is dead, a dead grave, a grandfather who was prematurely buried, someone who witnessed, your father witnessed a terrible thing as a child, um, the, you know, the very, the, so the, the, the worst thing that a little child can see, the famous primal memory, the Freudian thing, all of that is tied in and it affects you in the now. And uh, what you'll find in almost all these stories, at least eight out of ten of them, and I've counted and I've read countless, I'm, I'm no specialist, but I've, I've read countless of these stories, countless of them, and probably four-fifths of them actually end up with it turning out that there's some kind of a sort of emotional or psychological explanation for the terrible curse that has created this romantic purple situation. It's either a doctor or a clergyman, or a uh, or a, a a friend who's visiting from uh, an outside the context. That's uh, I believe in uh, in the story uh, the Rose of the Avernia. Averroigne by, uh, by uh, William Faulkner or Clark Ashton Smith stories. Um, someone comes into this situation of, of hypnotic horror and sees it for what it is, that it's basically a kind of hypnotic inherited state based upon a, a picture of the past that is long dead and actually dead, that has mesmerized the poor victim who has become a kind of criminal cataleptic tomb inhabitor. And you'll find that again and again and again. The classic case is Norman Bates in uh, Psycho, and the definitive gothic movie in modern times, in my view, is the 1961 classic by Alfred Hitchcock, Psycho. Just 
watched the penultimate section when Vera Miles, step by step, accompanied to Bernard Hermann's extraordinary music going down, 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 where she comes and confronts the mystery of the Bates family in the basement of the Bates house, which is used in so many Hollywood situations and is so emblematic and so symbolic. And the psycho has the going down, down, down. But at the end, you may remember, there's kind of a coda uh, in which Simon Oakland plays a psychiatrist who actually gives the back story. And he talks about what Norman Bates saw as a child, what he believed to be true as a child, what he later on saw in only a partially accurate way as an adolescent. And he had an arrested development, to say the least, and sort of became his mother uh, in his own opinion and a murderous or murderer. Now, this uh, uh, there's the, the, usually after the terrible thing is seen, whether every single one of these stories, the narrator or someone else sees what actually happens, and it turns out it's an essentially a dream. It's a it's a kind of construction based upon something that is dead in the dead past that has weighed in the present due to some kind of misunderstanding or inherited innocent uh, way of looking at it that wasn't actually the case that is stunted some poor character and in the stuntedness the poor character becomes a, a psychotic person. Uh, it's not that it's all reduced to psychology but it is all reduced to the inexorable power of the dead which is really illusory over the living. Now I would like to say that that's what the Gothic is about. It's about the um, the uh, the paralysis from the past which intrudes upon to the present often through a misunderstanding that has been arrested at a very early age because children don't understand. They're smart, but they're not wise. Young people are often brilliant and inspired and smart, but less often are they wise. Less often do they understand what they are feeling. Their work is fantastic because there's an unmediated burst of powerful, sensitive and sensible feeling, but often it's not interpreted in such a way that it sort of makes overall, that it's actually understood as it really is. You see this, of course, in the whole denouement of Eyes Wide Shut by Stanley Kubrick, where a young man experiences many things, but with complete ignorance. He doesn't know what is going on, and it has to be explained by the kind of Sidney Pollock rabbi, a businessman figure, who finally explains all, Agatha Christie fashion, almost to uh, Tom Cruise, the young uh, uh, sort of waspy doctor. Now, this is important. Uh, we're all living in a dream. I submit to you that more often than not, you are the victim of a misunderstanding that a lot of what you think is true isn't, and life instructs you. Life often has a terrible way of, of disillusioning you and deconstructing illusions, and of course at that point you almost want to become a drunk or a suicide or a depressive or a nihilist, whatever you want to say, and just leave this mortal coil, because when you see what is true as opposed to what kept you going, which really wasn't accurately understood, that can just completely take the rug out from under you. You are a lost person. And that, of course, is where you need support. You need love. You need help. You need mentors. You need loving parental, neo-parental figures, father figures, mother figures, supporters, good wives, good husbands, good children, good sisters. Seldom is that the case. Most people decline into an abashed disillusionment, which is covered over with alcohol or something like that. Um, 
And this is why uh, these stories are so powerful. They ultimately end up snapping the reader out of the dream which afflicted the victim. And so, just as the very end of the very famous Edgar Allan Poe core story, The Fall of the House of Usher, the man escapes from the illusion, unlike Roderick Usher and his sister, and uh, uh, all the others who are there, but especially the buried sister. And uh, the young man flees, and he escapes. And uh, he is able to see the whole house collapsing down and falling down. I referred in my Mockingbird blurb to an episode, and I'm going to only briefly do this because I felt I needed to for the blurb, a, an episode of the original Outer Limits from 1963-64 entitled The Guests. And you will not go out and rent it or buy it at Barnes & Noble. It's all there. It's in the second uh, DVD of the season, um, the, the second set of, uh, actually it's not season two, it's really the second year, but it's actually the end of season one in which um, Joseph Stefano and Leslie Stevens, the very wry, sharp, and understanding producers and writers, uh, got a uh, picture together of a group of uh, different time-bound, there's a a Gloria Swanson type from Sunset Boulevard, and there's an Edwardian man, and there's another woman from maybe the 30s or 40s, and they're time-bound in a huge Gothic house, the facade of which is the Bates house from Psycho, and they are completely bound up, and there's also a young girl who's from some unnamed past, played by Luana Anders, and then uh, a Jack Kerouac, a definite Jack Kerouac, Kerouac knockoff, um, comes rolling in sort of off his motorcycle, you might say, and walks into this house, this haunted house, discovers these paralyzed people, and they are all under some gothic spell, including Gloria Graham, who plays the actress with the plastic surgery, and she's fabulous. In this little one-hour segment, and God makes an appearance, but it turns out finally that they're all being held into thrall, not by all these demons and uh, ideas they have of arch bogies, but they're being held in thrall by an alien. <laughs> an alien! Don't you love it? And it's actually a well-done alien, in my opinion. Plastic he may be, but marvelous. And the alien is actually conducting a test to find out what the essence of the human is. And Luana Anders with a doff to Christianity that was actually meant that way because of Joseph Stefano's own uh, point of view, which surfaced several other times in these episodes. Uh, she uh, sacrifices herself for the Jack Kerouac character who's able to escape. And as, as he escapes as a result of her sacrifice of love, the whole house implodes upon itself and turns into a throbbing alien brain that he sees quivering on the hill and throbbing. And then it disappears and there's nothing there. It was all an illusion and he awoke from the dream, and lo and behold, there was an explanation to everything, and these poor benighted people who were undeconstructed, and he himself has lost his illusions, and yet he can live, and it's a very uplifting, shocking, brilliant, gothic ending and segment. The Guests, Outer Limits, end of season one. Well, that's my point. Are you a guest? Are you in some dream? Is, is, really a, is it all a gothic dream of paralysis based upon some kind of tremendous inherited set of ideas and maxims from the past which are only partially true? Or are you waiting for that kind of, uh, that dream to kind of uh, shift into nothingness and, and uh, evanesce away in favor of a throbbing alien brain which itself is no longer interested in you and is gone and there you're saved and now you can find your way because of love and because of the, because of the now? You know, there's something very powerful here in these things. And the Gothic is prelude to the now. Thank you so very much for listening to this podcast number 19 in our series. God bless you and thanks so much.